This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. You would have had to have spent the past few months in a tunnel to have missed the devastating, horrifying, sad, and sometimes heartwarming stories that came from the Australian bushfires that have claimed dozens of lives, destroyed thousands of homes, and burned tens of millions of acres across the continent of Australia. These were the worst fires in Australia in decades and are likely part of a new normal, not just in Australia, but also here in the United States, where Western fires have been growing in number, in intensity, and in cost in recent years. Not that we should ever set aside conversations about what can be done at this point to slow down or turn back climate change, but the reality is that we are very likely to be dealing with fires like this one for many years to come, no matter what we do at this point. And that makes conversations about fuel treatment really important. To that end, a recent paper in the journal Nature Sustainability outlines a range of approaches for prescribed burns. These are fires purposefully set to clear ground fuels. And we're joined today by the study's lead author, Rebecca Miller, who's with us by phone from Stanford University, where she is a PhD student in the School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences, Rebecca Miller, thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. I wanted to start today by noting that nobody would ever, ever, ever hope for wildfires of the sort that struck Australia over the past few months. But the timing of your recent paper could really not have been better to get the attention of a world that suddenly seemed to sit up and take notice of a problem that has been building for a very long time. What do you think it was about the Australian wildfires that, from your vantage, captured so much world attention? I think that the Australian wildfires were simply so massive. I mean, you listed off a number of statistics. And they're astonishing and terrifying. And the images that we've seen coming out of Australia evoke total fear because we see so many people, animals, communities affected by these wildfires. This is also coming off of what we saw in 2017 and 2018 in California, which was a series of devastating wildfires that have burned 3% of the entire state. And... Turning back climate change is certainly important if we want to reduce fires like this, but that's going to be a slow process if it's possible at all at this point. So you want people to start thinking more about mitigation that can be done. And I think you're suggesting that should be done right now. I think people who live in the U.S. West are generally familiar with the concept of prescribed burns, but give us all a refresher. What do we mean when we say prescribed burns? Absolutely. There are three major types of fuel treatments that we can use, and a fuel treatment is an effort to remove flammable vegetation from the landscape. These three fuel treatments are prescribed burns, mechanical thinning, and then managed or natural wildfire. And prescribed burns, which was the primary topic of my paper, are controlled fires that are intentionally set to clear out ground fuels. And ground fuels tend to enable greater and faster fire spread. These controlled burns, or prescribed burns, can only happen under very controlled circumstances, which means that the weather has to be right, and the humidity has to be right, and there have to be the right personnel to make sure that the fire doesn't get out of hand. And they're an underused fuel treatment in California 
but a really critical one for returning fire to the landscape. And so let's talk about really briefly these other two treatment types, because if everything sort of has to be perfect for or close to perfect for prescribed burning to happen, um, why is it still even on the table? I assume because it is incredibly effective in ways or effective, I should say, in ways that the other two treatment types are not? That's right. Mechanical thinning is what most people probably think of when they think of clearing out wood in the forest. You go in maybe with uh, some kind of machinery and you physically remove debris or woody material um, or trees from the area. And mechanical thinning can be effective at reducing the likelihood or impact of a wildfire, but it's actually not as effective, according to a number of studies, than prescribed burns. And mechanical thinning alone is less effective than doing a combination of prescribed burns and mechanical thinning. The other option, which is managed wildfire or wildland fire use, is when you have a natural ignition, so a lightning strike, in a very remote area, and you essentially allow that wildfire to burn. Because again, you're enabling natural fire to return to an area, but it's in such a remote location that it doesn't have negative impacts on local populations. It's not likely to burn up a community, and it's monitored. The big challenge for using managed wildfire or wildland fire use is that it's currently only legal in California on federal property because the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, or CAL FIRE, is mandated to suppress fires legally. So they can't let a fire burn. While managed wildfire is extremely useful, it's only possible on particular parts of California and isn't something that we can use close to communities. Well, and you literally need lightning to strike to have it happen, right? Exactly, exactly. And in California, only about 5% of all the fires are caused by lightning strikes. So you have to have a lightning strike in the right area and under conditions that aren't going to let it become a catastrophic wildfire. So then let's go back to this this use of prescribed burning. You looked specifically at the use of prescribed burns in California, and you found a lot of barriers there. Some of those barriers were social and governmental. Can you talk about those sorts of obstacles? Yeah. We identified three different sets of barriers, and we divided those barriers into the challenges that actually prevented people from starting to even think about doing a burn, from planning a burn, and the types of barriers that prevented people from conducting a burn or actually lighting that match. We found that risks were the primary issue in preventing people from planning a burn because people were concerned about liability. What happens if you set that match and accidentally set your neighbor's property on fire? We also heard that people were concerned about negative public opinion, that the general public didn't like prescribed burns, so it was easier to not even try to have one or not even start thinking about having one because you didn't want to deal with negative public opinion. But if you can get over those barriers, there's still other barriers, right? Because these are like... These are barriers of resources. There aren't enough crews. There isn't enough experience. There's not enough funding. The funding made me wonder, though, what the cost-benefit relationship is because, well, gosh, you know, wildfires are really expensive. The Paradise Fire in California has been estimated 
to have done $12 billion in damages. If we maybe turn some of the resources to this, can we prevent some of those damages? According to the academics that I interviewed for my study, they were concerned that people believed that mechanical thinning was more cost-effective than prescribed burning. The academics argued that it doesn't actually generate revenue from cutting trees and that mechanical thinning might cost between $2,000 and $3,500 per acre, whereas prescribed burning might cost between $400 and $1,500 per acre. And you compare that preventative cost to, as you said, the billions of dollars that come from catastrophic wildfires that we've seen. And the costs somehow don't seem as prohibitive. And in part because of that, California has taken some steps to make prescribed burning more possible. What has it done so far, and what do you think still needs to be done? There's been a lot of exciting legislation that's come through the state in the 2017 and 2018 legislative session primarily, much of which has been focused on prescribed burns. There's a new uh, training program that should be starting up. There should be educational programs to remove that barrier about negative public opinion. But the, and there's going to be a significant amount of money put forward by the state to increase fuel treatments. In fact, the state just organized a brand new program called the Vegetation Treatment Program, which has a goal of treating a quarter of a million acres, 250,000 acres, each year on the state. That's an amazing improvement from what we've been seeing in the past. The problem, of course, is maintaining that focus and making sure that we continue to address the barriers that remain. Because these steps aren't enough. That's right. These steps aren't enough. One of the big concerns is that we've had, obviously, a devastating wildfire season in 2018. But 2019 was comparatively quite light. We saw about 250,000 acres burn. And for context, about 2.9 million acres burned in 2017 and 2018 combined. So the challenge now is going to make sure that policymakers remain focused on wildfires when they're no longer making the news in California, because we need to have continued political support behind wildfire-related legislation to increase the use of fuel treatments and to continue addressing the barriers prohibiting prescribed burns. And so again, we get to this thing where you don't ever hope for this to happen, but unless it's happening, I mean, we know how politics works, not just in California, but everywhere. Like if a problem is out of sight, it's often out of mind and it's often out of the legislative agenda. You're right. And it is definitely a big concern. What I might hope is that, bringing it back to your first questions, that the devastation in Australia, unfortunately, may be keeping wildfires at the forefront of the minds of policymakers in California, maintaining that focus that is so important in our state legislature. When... It comes to calculating carbon emissions. Wildfires are counted as natural emissions, while prescribed burns are human-caused. 
You write that changing the way we view those calculations could help incentivize treatments. And when I first read that, I thought that you and your co-authors were suggesting we should treat prescribed burns as natural. But on further reflection, I realized that a lot of wildfires are caused by humans or the result of the fact that humans have stood in the way of natural processes. So I guess maybe the other argument is that the emissions from these things we call wildfires could actually be counted in the human-caused column. Yes, that would certainly be a major motivating factor for increasing the use of prescribed burns since their emissions are so much lower than those of wildfires. Suffice it to say, there's a, there's still a lot of things that we can do, and, and even the way that we kind of define what these events are, and then attribute them to the things that are important to us. Like in California, you know, climate change is an issue that a lot of people think about, and the legislature thinks about, and California has tried to take leadership on, and... By simply changing the way that we record the carbon emissions and what we attribute those emissions to, there's a chance that we could have a pretty substantial effect on, at least on how leadership prioritizes these things, right? It's certainly possible. California has presented itself as a leader in climate change efforts and policies in the United States. And so it's exciting to think about where wildfire policies might be heading in the climate change context. We began this discussion in Australia, even though your report was focused on California, but you write that many of the barriers that were identified in California, they also exist in Australia, and they exist in South Africa and the Mediterranean. And I do assume that there are probably some pretty significant cultural and political differences at play in all of those places. But if we found a set of policies that worked in California to reduce fuels, do you think it would be relatively easy to scale those policies in other regions around the world that are affected by wildfires? It's certainly possible. But one of the big challenges with all of this is recognizing that different locations have different climates and uh, experiences with prescribed and wildfire. Take Florida, for example, which is probably the state that has the best prescribed fire program in the whole country. And they do many, many, many times more prescribed burns than they have wildfires in that state. But they're also blessed with very high humidity. And so while I think California can learn a lot from Florida in terms of their liability laws and enthusiasm towards using prescribed burns, there are still going to be major differences between the California and Florida context. So while prescribed burns have barriers in Australia and South Africa and the Mediterranean, we have to recognize that each one of these locations is going to be different and is going to have different ecological and policy challenges. So there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to this problem. We're going to have to face this region by region, country by country, maybe even fire type by fire type. I think that that may be the case. One of the critical components of doing these fuel treatments, I mentioned prescribed burns, mechanical fitting, and managed wildfire, is that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Not every place 
is the best candidate for prescribed burn or managed wildfire or mechanical thinning. And so in each area that we're thinking about doing fuel treatments, we need to make sure that what we're doing is matching the treatment type to what the local ecology and those conditions actually need. How do you even go about that? That feels like such a huge effort. It's a different political challenge. It's a different social challenge. And it's a different scientific challenge in every community that you go to. That's right. You need people who are specialists in local ecology and understand conditions on the ground. And it adds an entirely new layer to managing our fuel treatment problem in California. If we just hone in on California, do you foresee a time in the future in which we could have this particular challenge, this category of disaster, maybe not completely controlled, but much better controlled? Or is it such a big problem at this point that it's hard to even imagine that day coming? I like to remain optimistic, so I'm going to say yes. One of the findings that I got from my study was not just focusing on the negatives, the barriers to prescribed burns and to the wildfire problem in California, but I also wanted to ask people about the solutions. What's making things better? What's enabling more prescribed burns? And what I heard from them was that when we do these prescribed burns well and we do them successfully and we don't have any escapes, it gives us more license to do more of these burns. When we have leadership support from the legislature or from the governor or from our CAL FIRE leadership, it means we can do more of these burns. And when we have collaborations between nonprofit organizations and policymakers, people are paying attention and developing policies that actually address the challenges that other people I spoke to identified. And unfortunately, as we've identified, when we have catastrophic fires, people sit up and pay attention and start making changes. And I certainly hope that over time, will increase our fuel treatments broadly across California and be able to see a decrease in the severity and intensity of the wildfires here. You're originally from California. I think that might offer some clues to this next question. How <laughs> did wildfire become your area of interest? In preliminary discussions with my advisors when I first started graduate school, I wanted to examine climate change adaptation in the entire United States and was told that is not a project that can be completed in the four to five years of a dissertation <laughs> and was recommended to pick something a little smaller, maybe something a little closer to home. And we settled on wildfires as a possible topic. And just a few weeks later, the 2017 Sonoma Complex fires happened. And it became immediately obvious that this would be the subject of my dissertation and that I'd be looking at how the 2017 fires and then subsequently the 2018 fires have influenced policy in California. You 
started your academic career in history. I'm wondering, when you look at this issue through a historic lens, what you see? I'm currently working on another paper focused on the history of prescribed burn policies in California. And one of the things that I've seen examining archival materials, barriers to prescribed burns date back decades. Concerns about limited experience or knowledge to conduct a burn. Worries about setting your neighbor's property on fire. These date back decades. And I think that it's important to recognize the ways in which we both have made progress, as I've mentioned from just the last legislative session, and the ways in which long-term barriers can still hold us back from moving forward. Do you think you're a bit of an evangelist for this method? How would you how do you think of yourself beyond just that scientific framing? I would not necessarily classify myself as an evangelist for prescribed burns. I think that I view the situation in California as one in which we need to be using every tool in our toolbox. We need to be using prescribed burns. We need to be using mechanical thinning. We need to be using managed wildfire and remote locations. And as I mentioned, we have to be sure to match our treatment type to the local conditions because California's got 20 million acres that need fuel treatments. That's 20% of the state. And I'm not saying that prescribed burns are the only solution to that problem. Far from it. I think that they are part of the solution. But what I've discovered in doing my research is that they're a particularly underused option. And it's a major gap that we can address. And I believe that the legislation that's been coming out is making positive steps toward addressing that gap. And this is not just a problem of putting the research in front of people. This is a challenge of communicating it in ways that are effective. What are you learning about that? I think that there's been a lot of exciting research looking at public opinion of prescribed burning. And I would mentioned that negative public opinion has been a challenge for instituting prescribed burns. What's exciting to me is that a lot of the research that's coming out looking at public opinion on prescribed burns says that that's really not a problem, that the public is interested in doing prescribed burns, particularly when it's explained that a prescribed burn generates far less smoke than a wildfire and is so much smaller. So I think that it's extremely important that we communicate how these prescribed burns work to decrease any concerns or worries from the public. These burns can only happen under very specific conditions of temperature and humidity and wind. You need to have personnel to make sure that they don't escape. Public education and communication is a critical piece of expanding our use of prescribed burns. What's the next step in this line of research and exploration for you? I'm going to be continuing the work that I'm doing, examining the history of prescribed burn policies in California. But I've also expanded to think a lot more about disaster management in the state. So I've recently been traveling to different areas around California that have been affected by wildfires, talking to people about their experiences during and after fires 
to see if we can better understand how different communities experience or cope with these natural disasters. What's jumping out at you just initially from those conversations? It's been heartwarming to hear how much communities have bonded and supported each other after these fires. I've heard dozens of stories about communities coming together after fires have burned through to support each other. I've also heard just how different many of these communities are. It's very hard to compare a place like Lake County, where over half of the entire county burned in fire since 2012, with a place like Santa Rosa, which hadn't had a fire since 1964. California experiences 8,000 wildfires a year, and I think that it's easy for us to talk about the wildfire problem quite broadly in California. But what I've heard in traveling to these various communities and in talking to individuals is that these fires affected individuals. And I don't want to think about these fires as California's 8,000 wildfires a year. I want to think about them as California's 8,000 individual fires, which affected individual communities and individual people. That's Rebecca Miller. She was the lead author on a recent report in Nature Sustainability on Barriers and Enablers for Prescribed Burns for Wildfire Management. Rebecca, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>